following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light across in our city and world through the transformed lives of its people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. We thank you. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. We give you all the honor. It is a privilege to stand in your presence, Lord God, to hear from your word, to learn from your word, to be transformed by your word as your spirit works powerfully through it. Father, we ask and pray that that would be granted to us today, that we would be transformed by your word as your spirit works mightily and powerfully through it. Father, would you bless would you bless your speaker, your preacher, but would you also bless those, Lord, that have gathered here to, to listen and to hear? Father, we need you. We need your transforming power. We need your transforming glory, Lord God, moving and operating in our lives, Father. So we ask, Lord, that you would move, that you would operate, Lord, here today. These things we ask and we pray in your son Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated, praise God. Amen. I want to talk to you a little bit about booths. 
Um, and and, and this, this, this message is called A Day at the Booth. And, and some of you guys may be wondering why, in fact, that, that's the title of this message. Why is it the title of the last two weeks? Um, but before we talk about booths, let's talk about thirst, right? Because there's a, there's a passage in this text that hits on thirst. Um, Sprite has a real, real, real good and, good and compelling campaign um, that they've been using for years now. And, and it's, it's three words, obey your thirst, right? I made it sound like four words, didn't I? Obey. No, it's three, it's three words, obey your thirst, okay? And, and they've been using LeBron James um, as their kind of spokesperson for this, for this campaign, for this commercial, for this branding that they've been doing for the last couple of years. And LeBron has a real funny commercial, a real funny Sprite commercial where he's kind of walking through his house and he's walking through different moments, different places and different venues, and he's talking about Sprite, but he's not talking about Sprite. So he's saying, hey, I won't tell you how great Sprite is, but he's like holding, holding a Sprite while he's walking around and drinking it and saying, ah, oh, this is great. But I won't tell you how great it is. I won't tell you how awesome is, I won't tell you how it just quenches every thirst in your body, I won't tell you this, I won't tell you that, but while he's saying he won't tell you, he's actually telling you, but at the end he basically says, hey, I won't tell you because I just want you to obey your thirst. In other words, you just follow what, what your thirst is telling you, with the idea being that Sprite is so good, that's debatable, but Sprite is so good that nobody will have to tell you to drink it, you'll just say, man, I just want a Sprite today. Right? That's the, that's the idea. Well, well, in some ways, what, what's happening here is a drawing in to say, hey, obey your thirst. Follow it. And there's going to be all kinds of opposition, all kinds of, you know, doubts being tossed over the fence, all kinds of different folks saying, oh, I don't know about that. Maybe you should go this way. Maybe you should go that way. But ultimately, there is, there is this call in this text to just simply obey your thirst. Because your thirst is an existential one. Your thirst is one that, that goes beyond this life. Your thirst, is some, your thirst, the one that you have, it's one that's been embedded into your soul. And it's not going anywhere. And you've been drinking and sipping and tasting from all different, all different wells and all different cups, right? You've been, you've, been, you've been taste testing all over the place, looking to have that thirst quenched once and for all. And God is saying, obey it. So let's talk about the booths. What, 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 why are we calling this a day at the booth, all right? Well, it's because John 7, the entire chapter of John 7, is happening during a very, very, very important festival or a very, very important feast in Jewish history. And the feast is called the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, or another way of saying it is the Feast of the Booths, all right? So I want to talk a little bit about when this feast was instituted. If you look at Leviticus, you don't have to turn there, but Leviticus chapter 23 I'm going to read this, verse 33 through 36. Leviticus chapter 23 is one of the first books of the Bible, so you got to go all the way back to the beginning to find it. But Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 through 36, and verses 39 through 43, this, this is what it says there. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh, seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of the booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. 
For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. And then verse 39, it says, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. And so there's a gathering that comes with this feast. The gathering of produce creates a reason for celebration. It continues, on the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of the splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and, and, or boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths. You should dwell in booths or tents for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so this is what's happening during this moment in John chapter 7. They are dwelling literally in booths on the outside of their normal dwelling place. Now, the significance of the feast, according to an article on this actual feast written by a Jewish Christian scholar and evangel or evangelist, rather, to Jewish people by the name of Fred Klett, according to him or article that he wrote, quote, the Feast of Booths called the Jews to remember God's providential care over us after we were redeemed from bondage in Egypt. Jews are to remember his provision for us during the 40 years of wilderness wandering. This is what this festival, this feast is about. This is why, continuing the quote, this is why God commanded Israel to observe the festival by leaving our permanent dwellings to live in a more fragile, temporary booth, or as the Hebrew word renders it, Sukkot. God instituted the Sukkot, the festival of the booths, as a reminder that dependence upon him was not something that ended when the promised land was reached. Amen. Are you listening? Thus, even after a good harvest, we need to remember year after year the temporal nature of this life and the fact that we must ultimately rely on God to provide for us. And so in the midst of this great celebration, I'm still in the quote, of God's provision, this feast of rejoicing in the abundance of God's goodness, this time of rest from one's labors, a specified multitude of sacrifices were offered to atone for sin, and this focus on atonement and forgiveness was a reminder of reliance upon God to provide for our spiritual and physical well-being, end quote. This is what this festival is about. Now, all of this is very important to this text. This was a feast that was geared to remind us of the provision of God in the wilderness, but also his continued provision year in and year out. This is what this feast was for, which is why this feast actually comes right after the harvest, because it's to say, hey, God provided this harvest. Does that make sense? And then, but not only does it stop there, the feast was geared towards strengthening our dependence on God because the feast reminded everyone as we prepare to sow for the preparation of the next harvest, we need God's hand in order to reap a harvest. Does that make sense? Amen. 
This is why the feast included much prayer to God for the upcoming agricultural year. The feast prayed, during this feast, they prayed to God for rain. Does that make sense? Because they were celebrating all of the harvest that they got, but they were also saying, hey, God, we need you again, right? We're not, we're not, we, this, is, this is to remind us that what we got last year is not a, not a product of our own working, but what we got last year was a product of you, and so we're asking you to get, we're asking you again to come through. Would you reign yet again on these lands in order that we might see fruit, in order that we might have sustainment? And the feast also was a time of rejoicing in God for his grace and provision. So there was a lot of joy, a lot of celebration. They had horns and trumpets that they would play loudly. They had people dancing. They had rabbis literally doing acrobatic stuff, right? Obviously not a Southern Baptist festival, but, but nevertheless, it was a festival that was, that was super duper joyous. Does that make sense? And why was it joyous? They were celebrating the fact that God had blessed them. And so they would sing and shout loudly and play loud trumpets, and they would, and they would dance joyously to celebrate it. Does that make sense? I mean, pic- picture us having a, having a cookout seven days long, and, and every day of the week we busting out the electric slide, thanking God for bringing us the harvest that he brought us. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, the Jewish people knew how to celebrate. They weren't all tight about these things. So it was, ta- it was teaching us dependence. It was teaching us the fact that God's provision or the fact that our provision came from God, but also teaching us to rejoice in him. Now, the signature ceremony in this seven-day feast was what they called a water libation, okay? And this water libation, again, quoting Fred Klett, or Klett, he says this, on the first morning of the feast, a procession of priests went down to the pool of Shalom to bring up to the temple a golden container of water sufficient to last throughout the seven days of the feast. The water was brought up with a great ceremony, and the shofar was blown, in other words, the horn, as they, as they brought this golden dish up to the temple. There was great celebration, people breakdancing, somebody's playing a trumpet and a horn, and, and all of this is happening with this water going up. And the pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for the feast waved their lulavs, which were like kind of decorative ornaments, as the priests carried the water around the altar. Then the priests on duty poured out the contents of two silver bowls. One held water and one held wine. And this was an act of prayer and an expression of dependence upon God to pour out his blessing of rain upon the earth. So this happened every single day. They would pour this water out onto the altar to ask God's blessing for rain. Does that make sense? And they would rejoice as they brought this water up because this was festival. This was celebration that God would provide us his water, that God would quench our thirst. And on the last day, the great day, as we just read, the water libation rite 
reached its climax. The priest circled the altar seven times and then poured out the water with great pomp and great ceremony. The great Hosanna, as it was called. So it was on this day that we find Jesus in verse 37. The great day. The climax of the water ceremony. The climax of us spending a week saying, Lord, quench our thirst. Lord, quench our thirst. Does that make sense? People dancing, singing loud, playing loud instruments. All around, all around, all around the words or all around the plea for the Lord to quench our thirst. It was Jesus in this moment, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This was a bold moment. This was a loud moment. I need you to understand this. Jesus did not, you know, go into a corner and say, hey, Mr. Joe, if they're really thirsty, they'll come after me. No. In the middle of this celebration, while people are celebrating God and saying, quench our thirst, and they're dancing, and they're, they're having this festival and this climatic moment where this, this, these priests are walking this altar, the, in, in the middle of that day, Jesus stands up, and the Bible says he cries out. In other words, he is yelling out these words. Diverting the attention completely away from the festival. Taking the attention away from the pleas of the people to quench our thirst, God. Taking the attention away from the priest, taking the attention away from the temple, taking the attention away from the water ceremonies, taking the attention away from the feast itself, and saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come after me. You understand what just happened there? The feast, Jesus, this is Jesus saying that the feast, the celebration, the ceremony, the water, the pleas, the cries are all pointing to me. And that you're looking for your thirst to be quenched. And I'm telling you to obey it by coming to me. You know, you know our, our, the, 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 we talked about how worship, how we do worship something, right? And so worship is a product of soul thirst. Our souls are thirsty. And so we look for things 
to worship. We look for things to cling our dreams on or to cling to or to hang our dreams on and to hang our hopes on and to hang our security on and to hang our confidence on. We want someone or something or somebody to do that. And Jesus, in this moment, is saying that somebody, that someone is me. Whoever believes in me, because this is where the flow happens. It happens in faith. In faith, you begin to receive the downpour of Christ's reign. In faith, he says, he shall quench the thirst of those who come and who drink. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, it is a sustainable water. Does that make sense? It's rivers. Not, not a drip, not a small portion, not a cup, but rivers. It's a sustainable water, water that will continue to flow, water that will continue to quench. Does that make sense? In other words, in Christ, as, as we find ourselves seeking to quench thirst, we always can find it in him. That makes sense. There's a lot. There's a lot of there's a lot of bodies of water, folks. A lot of bodies of water, saints, that we can drink from and walk away just as parched as we were when we came. We can look to we can look to certain relationships, right? We can look behind uh, certain bottles, right? Alcohol prescription. We can look to. TV, we can look to media, we can look to politics. There are so many bottles of water that we can go to, but ultimately when we drink from them, no matter how much you take in, right? You can stay there for days and days and months even and and drink from these same bodies of water, but when you stop drinking, your body is immediately or your soul is immediately saying, I need something else. Christ says, out of of this body of water, you'll never thirst again. From within flows rivers of living water. From within flows rivers of living water. He says, well, how does that happen from within? He tells you. Now this, he said, verse 39, about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's important, and we'll come back to it. And so in verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet, going back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. And we've talked about this on several occasions. Moses, uh, in the day of Moses, Remember that the scripture talks about there's going to come a prophet after Moses, right? The one and true and great prophet 
that is spoken of in Deuteronomy. And so some of, the, some of the people that are gathered, they hear these words that Jesus speaks, and they say, hey, this must be him. And, and others said, this is the Christ. And so, and so they didn't necessarily always connect the Christ and the prophet together like we do. We look at the Old Testament scripture, and we see the prophet, we see the Christ, we see the great king who is coming to set his eternal kingdom. We see that all fulfilled in Jesus. Does it make sense? They look at the Old Testament and they say, okay, may, the prophet may, be, may have been one person, the Christ may have been another. And so some people are saying, this is the prophet. Some people are saying, this is the Messiah. This is Jesus. This is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Now, here's the irony. Christ did come from Bethlehem. Does that make sense? Does it make sense? And so here they are. Some people are literally doubting him based on misinformation, which, by the way, happens all the time in today's era. All the time. Talk to people about Jesus. They say, well, you know, I mean, Jesus is really just a, a, a duplication of an Egyptian myth, Horus. Okay, you study that? No, I saw a YouTube video on it. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. YouTube is never wrong. But when you dig into it, what you find out is that it's completely bogus. The whole comparison is completely bogus. That somebody, someone decided that, hey, it would be a great idea to debunk Jesus by just pointing him to somebody that nobody's paying attention to and studying anyway. It's not like they're going to do their own research. Does that make sense? And now people are literally saying, well, no, nah, this Jesus thing, no, nah, I'm not for it because Horace, you know, Horace. I saw it on YouTube. Or, you know, this Jesus thing, no, I'm not down with it because, King, you know, King James, man, King James. King James messed the Bible up, you know. He, you know, he, 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 he wrote the Bible and he was all kinds of corrupt. You do know that King James didn't actually write it, right? And you do know that there are actual Bibles that date back before King James. You can go back and you can do this research on your own. But misinformation leads to unbelief. Does that make sense? Just the simple idea that people are saying here, hey, I thought the offspring was supposed to come from Bethlehem. Nobody's bothered to ask, Jesus, you from Bethlehem? Everybody's just saying, no, he's not from Bethlehem. They're like, oh, okay, he's not from Bethlehem. This happens in our era. So don't let your belief or don't let your disbelief rest on misinformation. Do your own digging. Does that make sense? Because the answers are there, clear cut for you to see. But nevertheless, they, they work through this dilemma. Some people say, hey, I'm, I'm with him. I think, I think he's the prophet. Some people say, hey, he's the Christ, and, and, and there's no doubt about it. This is the Messiah. Some people are saying, I got a lot of misinformation, so I don't know who he is. But the officers, the temple officers, verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and said, and chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers said, no one ever spoke like this man. Now, these were not ordinary officers, first of all. These were temple police. They, they respected the temple. They respected the festivals. They respected the Old Testament prophecies. So they would be, they, as a matter of fact, uh, the, theologians, the theologians referred them as being a part of the, Levi, uh, the Levite clan. And so these are folks that are very much in touch with all, all of the Old Testament understanding of the Messiah. 
And so they aren't just simply here to rough up some people and push them out of the temple. When a person talks and a person speaks with the kind of authority that Jesus speaks with, their ears perk up and they pay attention. Does that make sense? And so these weren't ordinary officers, but, the, but, but this wasn't an ordinary arrest either. They didn't make any excuses that you would expect them to make for not bringing him in. Nothing like we couldn't find him anywhere, right? I mean, because they would get in trouble literally for not bringing him in. And so you would think that they would come up with something significant to say, like, hey, we couldn't find him, we looked for him, he's a really, really good hider. Or we found him and he got away. Man, you wouldn't believe how he punched Bobby. Man, he, he, laid, he laid Bobby out and we were checking on Bobby and, Bob, and by the time we looked up, he, Jesus was gone. We couldn't find him. You don't hear any of that from them. What you hear instead is that they are literally genuinely amazed by the words that they heard. So amazed that they're willing to openly acknowledge that they had a chance to capture him and did not capture him. When the scribes taught the people in the Old Testament, or taught the people the Old Testament, they would refer often to the rabbis that came before them and quoting them as authoritative sources in their teaching. However, when Jesus spoke, he spoke as one who was offering his own words of counsel. Not words of counsel that he's having to refer back to ancient rabbis for, but his own words. He, not providing it from other people and other sources, but literally he was sharing his own words. And the authority that he spoke with was his own. He didn't appeal to anybody. He spoke like he was the one with the authority to speak. His words were powerful and yet gentle. His words were ancient and eternal wisdom, yet practical and relevant to the current situations of the day. He spoke of reigning over a kingdom without ever taking a throne on earth. He spoke of eating his flesh and blood as the source of an eternal relationship and fellowship with God. He spoke of giving us eternal life in his own death. He spoke with authority, and the people were amazed when they heard, including the temple police. And so they said, no one ever spoke like this man. We didn't capture him because you had to hear him. Does that make sense? Our thirst is telling us. Our soul thirst is telling us that instead of arresting this man, we should be worshiping him. Our thirst is telling us that we aren't simply arresting a man, that we, in fact, might be arresting the Savior, that we might be arresting the Messiah. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So the opposition to quenching your thirst happens, and it happens in a lot of different ways. The opposition to quenching your thirst happens sometimes when the, the cultural and the religious elites of your day begin to promote their opinions and their beliefs as true. And what I mean by that is the Pharisees say, 
Well, none of us believe. So you should know not to believe. Right? That's literally what they say. No, the authorities believe in them. What are you doing believing in them? You say, well, that's stupid. Why would I believe what they believe? Well, I mean, this happens all the time in your, in, in your current day, in your current society, that you build beliefs based on the society's beliefs. The society says, this is the way we should go. This is what we should do. This is how we should live. This is how we should see Jesus, right? And even though you can be looking at your Bible with your own two eyes, and your Bible will be saying something entirely different than what society is telling you, you will walk in the wave of society, or you will walk with the flow of society. Why? Because you treat the authority, the cultural authority's beliefs, as true and not the authority of Jesus himself. Does that make sense? So when the, when the cultural authority tells us that this is how we should see sexuality, or when the cultural authority tells us this is how we should see race, or when the cultural authority tells us this is how we should see politics, or when the cultural authority tells us this is how we should see rent, raising and rearing our children, or when the cultural authority tells us this is how we should see hope and depression and all other things that we try to process as humans, we say, well... If they believe that, then what am I doing believing this over here in the word of God? And that's an objection to getting your thirst quenched. That's an obstacle. If you attempt to determine the validity of Christ's claims based on the cultural authorities of the day, you'll never get to faith in Christ. But then they poke holes in the, in the believer's credibility, too. They say the crowds, they don't know the law. Does that make sense? The crowds don't know the law. The crowds are accursed. They're ignorant. You can't listen to them. The people that are saying that this must be the Christ, how are you going to listen to them? They don't even know the law. They move towards insults. Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist, does this all the time world-renowned atheist, British, British um, atheist. Not that British is bad. I, I don't know why I threw that out there. Anybody's from, if, if anybody's from Britain, I, I got nothing but love for you, all right? But Richard Dawkins, an atheist, he, he throws pot shots at Christians all the time. He just says, you must be stupid to be a Christian. How stupid can you be to believe in this? You know, because if you can't, if you can't really give real credible arguments, then the next thing you move towards is just tossing pot shots, right? And that's what the crowd, oh, that's what the Pharisees do. They toss pot shots at the believers. And then the last thing they do is they start just pushing misinformation and inconsistency. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the laws are cursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And so what they say is, I mean, what Nicodemus says, we know Nicodemus from John chapter 3, okay? But Nicodemus says, he's in the camp with these guys. He said, hey, wait a second. Our law doesn't operate like this. And it doesn't. But listen to how they responded, Nicodemus, in verse 52. Are you from Galilee too? In other words, are you, one of the, are, are, are you one of these dummies as well? I, th I thought you were with us, right? 
Shut up. Get your act in order. We're, 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 trying, to, we're, trying, to, we're trying to qualm some qualm some things. We don't need you bringing other stuff up. We don't need you talking about our inconsistency in the law. Does that make sense? And so here, here are these people that are so committed to the law, when the law is presented to them, they, shut up. Stop talking about that. We don't have to give him a, a fair trial. We don't have to listen to him. We don't have to hear anything from him. This is our opinion, and that's what it is. Deal with it. And then not only, not only that, but they move from inconsistency to just flat-out misinformation. Again, talking about no prophet arises from Galilee. False. Jonah arose from Galilee. There were others that arose from Galilee. But again, much of our doubt sometimes rests in simple misinformation, getting details wrong, and accepting those details as facts. So you have to cross that bridge in order to get to what's going to quench your thirst. You have to get past the cultural authorities. You have to get past the insults, right? You have to get past the misinformation. You have to get past the inconsistency in order to get to what will satisfy you for eternity, which is Jesus and his living water. Now let me close by saying this. How do you get the living water? Jesus tells us. Remember I told you we would come back, we would come back to this verse. He says this. In verse 39, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus speaks of living water that's coming, right? It's going to be, it's going to come via his Spirit. But he says that the Spirit hasn't come yet because he hasn't been glorified. Glorified, what does that mean? He tells you in a few verses before that. He says, verse 32, or verse 33, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I'm sorry, Verse 32, rather, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me, for where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? This is what he means. Jesus means that I am going to my place of glory. I'm going to be glorified. And you can't come there. Now, here's, a, here's, here's, here's the one piece that you need to understand behind that. In order to get there, he has to cross the cross. Amen? Amen. And so the key to our receiving God's living waters, the rivers of living waters, comes with Jesus being glorified. And Jesus is glorified through his obedience to God the Father as he goes to the cross and dies. So the key to your thirst being quenched is found in the death of Jesus. Listen, Jesus sits on a cross. Do you remember this, those who know that cross, know, those that know the story of the cross? Jesus sits on the cross, weary, and worn from a day of agony where God's wrath has been unleashed upon his own shoulders, God the Father. And as he hangs on that cross, rising up and down to find air for his lungs, he looks over to someone and he says what? I thirst. 
Jesus became thirsty to quench your thirst. Jesus went without fluid, without water, in order to give you and grant you living water. Jesus, in that moment, lacked in order that you would never lack, that you would always find satisfaction, that your thirst would always be quenched. He quenches our thirst by becoming thirsty. goes past the point of humiliation from the cross to the resurrection into glory in order that he might send his spirit and through his spirit would come comfort, joy, peace. In his spirit would come provision. In his spirit would come all of the things that they were celebrating, all of the things that they were praying for, all of the things that they were dancing and rejoicing in, all of the things that they were pleading for on that day, Jesus thirst in order to provide that to you. Let us not wallow in debate. Let us not wallow in unbelief. Let us not let the culture dictate what we should accept. Lay claim to Jesus Christ. Accept him. Embrace him. Yeah. Cling to him. When everyone else is telling you to go this way because this is the way we're all going, cling to him. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you so much. We ask, Lord God, that you would move in power to help us continue to, continue to cling to you, God. Father, may we, may, we, may we appreciate, Lord God, the fact that you became thirsty in order to see our thirst forever quenched. Father, our souls yearn to be satisfied, Lord God, and, 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 and though we may seek to find that satisfaction in so many different places, there is only one place that we can ultimately find it. So, Lord, help us see that. Help us know that. Help us, help us cling to that reality and help us, Lord God, drink from the well that never runs dry. That well being your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we love you and thank you and give you praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.